to the Legal Digest podcast with your host Natalie. Today I'm joined by Marb. She's an in-house trainee solicitor and a digital content creator where she shares careers and lifestyle tips for others embarking on a similar journey to her. We're going to talk about her experience from refugee to trainee solicitor, her experience in the workplace as someone who is a practicing Muslim and how both of these play a part in her motivations and ambitions in the future as a lawyer. Thanks for joining me today, Marv. Thanks for having me, Natalie. It's a pleasure. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about kind of your experience and your your background a bit more. And on your Instagram, you talked a bit about coming to the UK in 2007 as a refugee from Sudan. So could you tell us a bit more about why you had to leave the home country and why you chose the UK and perhaps also kind of your experience as a refugee in the UK? Yeah. So uh, we came to the UK in 2007 as a refugee, like you stated. Um, and originally it was just because my dad um, was working with the UN. So like with Save the Children and other NGO organizations. And at the time there was a civil war going on in um, Sudan. So if you don't know too much about Sudan, it basically is, um, it used to be one of the biggest African countries um, in the African continent. Um, and then we kind of broke up between South Sudan and then Sudan. Um, but Sudan as a whole is made up of different ethnicities, different cultures, different languages, different religions, um, and different tribal backgrounds. So there's tribes that are uh, more African based, like their ancestry is more African, and there's other tribes that are Arab ancestry. So there was a lot of kind of civil war and you know issues going around with that so where my family's originally from the civil war had kind of started over there and my dad was bringing attention as to what was going on in that region with uh, the UN and his NGO background um, and yeah my dad just realized that it was kind of becoming a little too dangerous uh, for his family especially with the work that he's doing as he'd realized that the government was kind of a little bit on him at that time and a lot of his friends who were also in the same line of work had started to quote unquote disappear so we had um, then decided to move to the UK. Uh, don't know what the reason was for my dad choosing the UK I was only about I'd say maybe 10, 11 or 12, I don't particularly remember. Um, and my dad just said, oh yeah, we're moving to the UK. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh, England, amazing, the queen, um, red <laughs> red phone boxes, <laughs> everything that I've seen on um, Disney Channel and all the movies that I've watched as a kid. So I had a completely you know, different idea to, to what really the reality was of, of the circumstances and my father, Till now, in the line of work he does, doesn't really go f any further with giving me information, especially things that can be quite distressing. So I didn't really know why we had came until kind of grew a bit older and I would hear uh, conversations and I'd ask my dad more questions. And then I realized, ah, oh, so it wasn't just for a holiday. <laughs> this was kind of a permanent move. Like I'm here forever, yeah. forever. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of a little bit of, of a background. Yeah, and when you arrived here, like, how did you find your experience as a refugee? I think I still remember my first day. We came to London, and I really imagined that it was going to be bright and sunny and beautiful. We came, and it was, and I think it was in September as well. It was just pouring rain, and it was dark and grey. And I'd come from Sudan, like it is forty degrees and up 
all yeah. around. It's sunny. And I was like, um, are, we, are we in the right place? That, um, <laughs> can, can we go back? Where's the sun? I don't know. Um, I just like, again, things like hearing the language. Like I'd come from hearing Arabic around me because that's my, my native language, my mother tongue. So then, you know, seeing people of different colors and seeing just diff it was just an overall really weird experience and then we went to uh, stay with my uncle and I hadn't seen him in god knows how long um and I was just like oh okay so so this is what's happening um but I was just really excited besides the rain and the gloominess of September I was just really excited for like this new journey yeah yeah it must have been a lot to kind of get used to a huge change compared to you know yeah. what you were used to before so were there any challenges with getting into university um and did you how, how did you decide to pursue a career in law yeah so from a very young age everyone has always told me oh my god you're a lawyer I was kind of named the lawyer of, of the family because I loved to argue <laughs> up until now <laughs> I always like would articulate how I felt and I wouldn't just leave things as I would just always ask why and I would try to kind of be like the devil's advocate so I was kind of known as a lawyer so I don't know if it was a choice of mine or if it's something that has been implanted in my head from when I was a child um so I'd say that's where um my initial uh, kind of desire to go into law came from but also because of the work that my dad does I absolutely um, the definition of a daddy's girl. I adore my father. I mean, I just, I wanted to be like my dad from a very young age. Um, and I respected him a lot knowing the type of work that he was doing. But I knew that I did not have the guts to go and live in, you know, countries where there's war and there's famine and be on the ground to try and help. Um, I knew that the change that would really stick for a very long time had to come from a legal system that's fair and just and from removing corruption from the legal system and from governments because I'd seen in my own country uh, and I'd seen how when you try and bring fairness back into society and justice the, the change is a lot more permanent um, and then in terms of university uh, it was a little difficult again because I had to like I was only speaking English for about two years um, because we had lived in Indonesia for a while. Um, my dad moved us when the tsunami happened, I believe, in 2005. So I had just started to learn English and I had a very, very huge American accent. I sounded like a valley girl. Um, and honestly, I think it was because of all the Disney <laughs> that I'd been watching. Also, my school was American based. Um, so I stood out, not just because I was, you know, black, but also because I didn't sound like everybody else. Um, so learning the language, learning the culture, understanding the curriculum, you know, my, my dad was in another country, he was in Yemen at the time, um, and then my mom was trying to figure out how is she going to take care of three kids in a country all by herself, having to adapt and change. So she wasn't really as present as I would have wanted her to be. So I kind of had to fend for myself and understand the educational system a lot better. Thankfully, my grades were not that bad. Um, but I'd say one huge thing that I, me and my family didn't realize until my sister had started to apply to universities is the whole concept of Russell Groups. Right. Yeah. Um, all I knew is Oxford, Cambridge, and everybody else. Yeah. 
So when I was applying to universities, I wasn't thinking, oh, I need to apply to a Russell Group University or Redbrook University. I just applied to the universities that look nice. And yes. I remember I, went, I had Sheffield, I had Coventry, Nottingham, Trent, and Lancaster. I went to Lancaster, it was the first one I went to, came to the campus, I said, oh, it's nice. I like the vibes, there's trees, there's lots of nice walking places. I like it here. And that was it. Yeah. Didn't do any, anything else, didn't go anywhere else. I trusted my gut. Thankfully, thank God, <laughs> Lancaster is a top 10 university, so I did make a terrible choice. But I had absolutely no idea that, you know, a lot of firms would have a bit more preference to Russell Group University students. So I'd say that's where that that challenge had come because I, I realized that much later on. But um, it wasn't as difficult as, as I thought it would be. Thankfully, uh, because the university I went to was good. Um, but it was just not knowing, you know, the full culture and the educational culture in the UK compared to, to, the, to Sudan or even to Indonesia. Yeah, and I think maybe that comes down to the fact that you're not told early on, early on enough about what you need to do mm-hmm. to get into these firms and what they're really looking for. Yeah. Now you're you're doing your in-house training contract. So I did the same thing. I was also an in-house trainee. How has your experience been so far? Yeah, um, I think it's it's been a really interesting experience because for so long I had imagined that I would you know, complete my LPC, get a traditional training contract, train out a firm for two years, and then go and do what I need to do. So I had absolutely no idea that this is where my career would, would go, because when I applied for Flex, it was literally on a whim. It was on a random day. I was randomly on LinkedIn, and I applied. Um, but now, especially now that I'm six months in, I am really looking ahead to the future and I'm trying to be very intentional with the training that I would like the supervision that I feel like I need a little bit more of or in what way um, I can help the company help me um, because I know that especially for in-house legal teams who do not have or have never had a trainee it can be very difficult to you know get them to train someone because they're usually very used to working and being alone so that's something that I've now been taking an active role in my training and just being a lot more intentional rather than blase and just trying to go with the flow. Um, and I, what, and one thing also that I struggled with a lot is loneliness. Because um, I think with trainees, um, there's always that thing of you're in a cohort. These are, these are your group. You guys will go through things together. You know, it's the thing of uh, if my supervisor annoyed me, I can go to my cohort and, you know, talk to them. And I know there's that camaraderie and that, you know, agreed sense of confidentiality and trust between us. Like you you tell me how your supervisor annoyed you. I tell you how my supervisor annoyed me. But when you don't have that and you're the only one, it can get quite lonely at times, especially because I feel the legal team is always kind of we're like the last thought when it comes to companies, like we're stuck away in a dingy little corner and people just think of us when they need help with something. So it's helped me a lot in terms of my personal development because I'm becoming a lot more used to being alone and confident with being alone. I'm having to accept and face a lot of issues that I may have had in the past that I guess I now need to deal with and heal in some sort of way. Um, so it's been challenging, but it's definitely been I would say a life-changing experience because 
I've really had to, um, I don't want to use the word fend for myself, but I've had to be more stern and confident and strict and have discipline with myself because now I know that my career lands in my hands because I'm a trainee now. I'm not someone who's looking for a trainee. In a year and a half, I'll be qualified. And that's a completely different ballgame. Yeah, and I think when you're in-house as well, like I agree, it can be a bit lonely um, when you don't have other people at the same level to talk to and sort of support each other. But I think in turn, you end up being more confident than other trainees that I, well, ones that I've met that qualify through private practice. And, you know, it's, it's almost like you don't have that extra hand holding that I think mm-hmm. perhaps you get in private practice. But again, I can't speak for everybody because I trained in house. Yeah. I don't want to generalize. Um, but that's, you know, it's just something that I've witnessed working with people who, who took that route. Yeah. I think it's the fact that you have much more client contact. Mm-hmm. Like when I started, I would be sweating like profusely when I had to speak to someone that's a bit higher up than me like a general manager like an executive or a director but now even my my supervisor had had commented and he said like Ma'ab your confidence in the past six months has been amazing like now I don't even have to ask you to contact people you're just contacting them like yeah. I spoke with you know, a really senior member in the company two weeks ago, and I just called her and we had a chat. And I couldn't have never thought I'd be able to do that, you know, when I'd started. Um, but that's because you have that client contact regularly. People are emailing you, people are calling you. It's formal, but it's a little bit less informal because you don't have to go to your supervisor and ask if you can speak to someone. So it does build your confidence in that sense. But I do feel like that hand-holding experience needs to also be there when it comes to in-house teams because you are a trainee and yeah. you do need to be trained. Um, the, yeah, the, just time and effort needs to be put for, for these qualified lawyers who are absolutely amazing in the job that they do, who are qualified for several years to just, I guess, take a step back and realize that this is someone who is just starting their career and they need time and attention so they can become you know, the best lawyer that they can be. Yeah. And I think also just to add to that, it's partly, I think, in-house, there's less hierarchy within teams. Yeah. Um, so you do feel like it's an open door policy and you can just call somebody up. But I don't know, in private practice, I think maybe it, there's definitely a clear hierarchy of who you talk to, who you don't talk to. And so maybe that's, yeah. that doesn't help with the nerves of speaking to like just random people who have mm-hmm. that kind of really senior level. Um, I wanted to kind of move on to, because um, you're quite open about the fact that you're 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 very religious and and yeah. the way that you dress and everything, um, your relationship with the hijab being important to you. So could you just like talk us through the importance of that and how you found that experience? Was there any negativity towards you by your colleagues? Um, not by my colleagues. Um, I don't think I've ever had a terrible experience with my colleagues. It's all just in my head. Um, but I think I am in a different position because I started wearing my hijab when I was in year nine. So I'd say maybe 14, 15. Um, and again, I, I kind of do things impulsively. (laughs) So I literally wore the hijab because my friend had this annoyingly loud, multicolored, cheetah print sequin hijab and uh, and it was like during that era of jersey shore and just everything being in your face well i put it on i was like oh my gosh i look cute and i was like mom i'm gonna wear hijab and that was literally it didn't think about it 
didn't didn't think of any consequences like how people would see me so I've kind of always been through life in that way like I'm in my own little bubble so when I had graduated I did have a little bit of a kind of fear if I'll be able to wear my my black dress my abaya to work and will will I not be able to get a job but after speaking with other people I realized as long as I look clean I look polished I look professional it really shouldn't matter whether my hair can be seen or my legs can be seen yeah exactly whether I'm wearing a, a suit or a skirt or if I'm wearing you know my religious dress um and I try to not make it a huge deal because one great thing about British culture is they're so scared of offending <laughs> you to your face that they kind of won't bring up the topic unless you do. Okay. So I'm kind of act oblivious. Mm-hmm. So like if I wear my, you know, my khimar, which is a longer hijab, or if I wear like my jilbab, which people might, you know, perceive to be a little bit more religious, I just act like I was dressed the same way I was dressed two weeks ago. Like, oh, what's the issue? Like, I don't see the elephant in the room yeah. that others might, even though I know it is. And deep down, I'm also stressed. Yeah. I just act like it's fine. Oh, yeah. anything's, no, nothing's wrong. Everything's good. <laughs> and because of that, they don't feel comfortable to bring it up. Okay. Um, and I, yeah, I just don't make it a big deal, like... I am dressed how I'm dressed. It really shouldn't matter and it shouldn't affect me being able to do my job properly. I understand if maybe I need to go to court, if I need to like meet the CEO or something. I understand that. But if I am in house and there's, you know, other girls who are, especially when it was summertime and, you know, they're dressed in whatever way they feel comfortable, that should also not be an issue. Um, so I try to not make it seem like an issue or an insecurity of mine. You hired me because I was right for the world, not because the way that I dressed for the world. Yeah, and it comes down to your skill set and you know your your ability yeah. to do the job rather than how you look. As you said, do you yeah. think that working from home and and remote roles have kind of removed that layer of feeling like? you can't wear what you want for some people. I don't know if other people have shared that with you. Yeah, I, I know, especially for girls who maybe cover their face, like remote work has been extremely helpful for them yeah. because they don't have to worry about whether, you know, a specific company will accept them because the way, the, of the way that they're dressed. And I just think remote working as a whole can be really, really helpful, especially like if, you know, during fasting periods, like during Ramadan, um, or like, you know, doing Friday prayers, like for the men, if they need to go and pray and the, the mosque might be like half an hour from me, from the workplace, but only 10 minutes from, from your home. So I love remote working and I, you know, love to be in roles, especially when I'm qualified, that provide me with a little bit of remote working. But I think it's an advantage to everyone, whether you're religious or non-religious. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you on that. Um, In one of your social media posts, you talked about the necessity to be able to deliver passive aggressiveness in the workplace and that this is (laughs) fundamental to being a great litigator. So what made you discover Mm. this um, and what else have you discovered on your journey into law? Yeah, I think because of my personality, I am someone who hates confrontation, but I also am very emotional. So it's like two sides of me that are always fighting. It's like, if I'm really upset, I don't want to confront you by telling you I'm upset, but 
but there's going to like my face is going to show I'm upset my body language is going to show that I'm upset so a huge personal development thing of mine at the moment is being able to communicate how I feel whether it's positive emotions or negative and being able to give feedback in a constructive and healthy way um and I also realized that you know with litigation I mean both sides are fighting each other ultimately it's just who's going to win the fight yeah. and there's going to be times where the other side have unrealistic expectations or they're being a little rude and you kind of have to be a little rude back in a professional way so that's where the passive aggressiveness comes from but overall I think it's just about standing up for yourself and being stern and clear with your boundaries and with also the position that your client wants you to hold for them uh, whether you agree or disagree or whether the other side is going to be very you know good and like nice and approachable with, with their style or they're very aggressive because I've met very aggressive uh, litigators in the past and I'm, I'm definitely not one of those <laughs> definitely not um but yeah like the partner that I had at my first legal job she really had my back and she wrote this beautifully worded passive aggressive email back to the other side um and I just realized that you know what sometimes you do need to be a little passive aggressive professionally um, and you do need to stand up for yourself because the, I mean people are people and some people will try you especially if they feel like you're easy to walk on like in Arabic we have the word miskin like oh you're someone who's so easy like I can just smack you and they'll turn around and say thank you yeah. and I used to be that person and I'm trying to not be I'm trying to have a little bit of a own to me yeah I think it does teach you definitely teaches you to be that I mean just um touching on that subject as a whole like I spoke to people that said they were over promised things you know like career progression within their roles and it's if you accept that you're not going anywhere and you keep letting them say mm -hmm. oh no later later we'll do that later and you never stand yeah. your ground and you never say um we need to do this now because you promised me that we were going to do this and even like yeah. emails and things like that yeah I think it's not just legal teams like I've noticed with lots of different departments people will turn on the passive mm -hmm. aggressiveness when they want something done yeah. you have to also learn to push back and this is a huge thing I'm learning now where I have to set boundaries and pushbacks on like it might be urgent to you, but yeah. it's really not urgent to the legal team. Yeah. And it's not urgent. To I have, all, I also have priorities. And, you know, when I started, I was so eager and I was overpromised and I would respond within five minutes. So they then realized, oh, she's the responsive one. I can yeah. get work from, like, from her in five minutes. But then, you know, I started to get more work from the other team. I'm in a lot more projects. I can't deliver the same way I could when I was in my first two months. So yeah, I, I, I'm learning now to push back a little bit more and also set boundaries and have, and tell them my priorities um, because you can't, you know, you're not gonna please everyone and everyone's not always gonna be happy with you. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the harsh truth. Yeah. And then I guess just finally, so, do you know what you want to do now after qualification, given you know, your experience in-house and, and also your personal experience seeing your dad back in the UN? Yeah. Has, has either of those things kind of helped you decide? Mm -hmm. 
I would love to work for the UN or work for an NGO one day. I think that's always been a big dream of mine. And I would just love to have that experience. But that's for not for another couple of years. I think yeah. I need to really build my skill set and my network as a solicitor, especially after I qualify. I do love the in-house experience. Um, I think it's helping me a lot with my commerciality and my commercial awareness and just understanding of the way a business works. And I don't think I would have had this knowledge if I was working in private practice yeah um I would yeah I would like to stay in-house but I also think a couple of years or even a couple of months in private practice will help me to hone in those skills especially when it comes to like drafting and you know negotiation and everything like that but I am pro (laughs) in-house thanks to flex and I've always wanted to work in-house um so yeah I think right now I'm trying not to think too much about NQ jobs because it gives me major anxiety I'm just trying to think about okay you know next next uh what the next steps are do I want to stay with my current company do I want to move to another industry like what do I want to do what skills do I have what skills don't I have how can I get those skills and how can I make sure my CV is in the best absolute spot to help me get really good NQ jobs in the future whether that is in private practice or in-house because the expectations of these of these companies or law firms are going to be completely different because I'm not being hired as a paralegal but I'm being hired as an NQ Um, and that is just absolutely insane for me to think about well thank you so much that brings us to the end of this episode Um, don't forget to leave a rating and a review if you enjoyed this episode and if you'd like to hear more from Marv we will put her details in this episode's description and if you have any questions about today's discussion feel free to reach out to us on social media or via email